Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this episode, we're going to be looking back on a tumultuous political year, both in Britain and abroad. I'm delighted to be joined for our last episode of 2016 by George Parker, our political editor, Julian Tett, our US managing editor, chief economics commentator Martin Wolf, and political correspondent Henry Manns. Thank you all for joining. So what a year it has been. 2016 will certainly go down as the year of great political upset. Looking back on all the events is going to be no easy task, but I'm hoping that our FT experts can help us get through it. Let's begin with the UK. The year began with David Cameron's new deal from Brussels, which then led into the intensity of the long and short EU referendum campaigns. Then we had Brexit, swiftly followed by Nigel Farage's resignation, the coup against Labour's Jeremy Corbyn, Nigel Farage's latest resignation from UKIP, three colourful leadership contests, Theresa May's sudden elevation to Downing Street, Mr Corbyn's second huge management party's leadership, the yellow dawn of the Liberal Democrats in Richmond, and the process of Brexit commencing in a fashion. So George Parker, out of all of that, what has been your highlight of 2016? I don't know whether there's a highlight or a lowlight, but obviously the Brexit vote in, on June the 23rd was the moment, wasn't it? And I remember sitting at my desk on the morning of June the 24th as the pound was collapsing, the whole political world had been turned upside down, and David Cameron resigned. And it was almost like the resignation of the Prime Minister was the least interesting thing that was happening at that moment. You know, we were leaving the European Union, the markets were in freefall. And it was an amazing morning, really, just thinking back to it. What struck me, really, was the joylessness of the victory of the Leave campaign, the fact that there weren't big celebrations anywhere. There was a rather desultory gathering of UKIP people on College Green, but generally a sense of shock descended on the country. And I think, really, you, know, you have to start there. That was the defining moment in British politics. And Henry, what's your particular moment, the same as George's? Yeah, to pick something different, I think Jeremy Corbyn's win in the Lady Leadership contest was a sort of fascinating case study of a party that's grown to be, it says, the biggest social democratic party in Europe by membership, and yet looks very distant from government in terms of election. And yet the leader is in a very strong position and swept aside the challenger Owen Smith. I think that was an interesting parable of what can happen to a party. My moment of 2016 was probably, I think, June the 30th, which was the day when it all really kicked off in terms of the Tory leadership contest, because this was the day Boris Johnson was expected to launch his leadership bid. And it was that morning that Michael Gove had stabbed him in the front, back and sideways and betrayed him. So you had Michael Gove launching his bid, Boris dropping out. And that whole day just felt completely extraordinary. And I think that whole week afterwards, George, it was just day after day, another event happened. Um, We'll go through them one by one. So let's begin begin right back to the beginning 
of 2016, which was David Cameron was knee-deep in trying to get a new deal for Britain from Brussels. And he was locked in hours of intense negotiation, which you covered and had written about. And he did get a new deal, which was seen in Brussels as to be quite a big thing. But at home, it never really flew, did it? It never was really taken seriously. And a lot of people say that was the moment the referendum was lost. That's right. He didn't really come back from Brussels with anything he could sell on the doorstep in a referendum campaign. He didn't achieve enough on immigration, which turned out to, of course, be the defining issue of the referendum campaign. There were some controls on welfare claims by migrants, but it didn't answer the central question about whether you could stop at least temporarily free movement. There was actually quite a good bit in there, which was a, it formalised the relationship between Eurozone countries and non-Eurozone countries, which would have, I think, turned out to be rather useful had we decided to stay in the EU. But in the end, none of it was remotely sellable on the doorstep. And uh, the whole exercise, to be honest, was a complete waste of time. Henry, we saw these reports about the emergency break. This was the thing that David Cameron either asked for or didn't ask for or want or didn't want, depending on the different accounts. But this would have essentially said that the free movement of people into Britain would have ended and it would have had a limit when public services were at their breaking point, which they would have deemed to be now. If he'd got that, do you think that would have changed the dynamics of the campaign and of the eventual result? The referendum was relatively close. I think that you can point to several what if and any greater concession on immigration would have been right up there in terms of things which could have swung it. Having said that, I think had the Remain campaign run a different message, run a more proactive, engaging campaign, hit more against their enemies, had Cameron been willing to debate one-on-one with Boris Johnson or Michael Gove, then that itself would have maybe got them over the line. Uh, I think the emergency break, something that people will look back on. One of the difficulties Cameron had convincing other European leaders was that he couldn't point to hard evidence of public services being at breaking point, we're told. The thing that's so ironic about this, George, is that that's actually that might be considered, that this whole two-tier Europe, which is what Britain wanted for many years, is now more likely to happen than I think it's been for a long time and that there's concerns across the continent growing about free movement of people. So in the kind of wider situation, if Britain left just as real change could happen. That's true. I think if you were on the leave side, you'd point to the fact that the multiple crises facing the European Union in 2017 are a good reason for us to get out and to forge a new position in Europe. But you're right, the concern about migration, I think, will require leaders to impose limits on free movement. And I think the initial knee-jerk reaction of people in Europe after the Brexit vote, which was always the knee-jerk reaction of Brussels, is we need more Europe. I think that was quickly drowned out by people saying, hang on a sec, this is a real wake-up call for the European Union. Things have probably gone far enough and we need to put the brakes on. So after David Cameron came back, we were into the long EU referendum campaign, Henry. Primarily, you know, the big intensity of that was from the Remain side, where they fired a lot of their weapons before the Perda period of the short six-week campaign. This was when there were the two infamous Treasury analysis that have been dissected quite a lot since the vote which said that if we vote to leave the EU each household would be £4,300 worse off and the economy would have an immediate shock and everything would turn out to be rather disastrous and it felt very much as if the Remain campaign was winning at that early part casting back into my memory at this point because they were focusing on the economic arguments and they were making a very very clear case about that but the key thing that changed it of course was Michael Gove and Boris Johnson who didn't declare for the Prime Minister and soon after he came back from Brussels went over to the leave side. Yeah, and I think had the result been the other way around, it'd be really easy to rationalise. We'd say the Leave campaign was split into two groups which hated each other, the Farage group and the Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, who wanted to have a more sort of centre-right approach. And once that main group led by Boris Johnson and Michael Gove... This embra- is the Vote Leave group. The vote Leave. Once they embraced a real anti-establishment, let's shake things up kind of message, they really got momentum. And there was a stage just before the Perda period started 
where it basically looked like Remain had won, where you thought it's over. You know, there's a close to a double digit lead. We can really foresee the result. But they really were very strong on messaging in a way that the Remain campaign never found something that would really chime with voters. I mean, you start from Britain stronger in Europe and you sort of move on from there and you think it just wasn't clicking. Which obviously was shortened to BSE very quickly <laughs> after they launched the campaign. You know, the take back control message, George, certainly goes down with obviously Make America Great Again as the mm. two great political slogans of 2016 and probably of our time as well. That whole sense that control had gone and if you vote for Brexit, control will come back again. Mm. Whether it will or won't, we'll see in the coming years. But the messaging of vote leave and the operation was very, very good. Whereas the Remain campaign, as Henry said, never really got off the ground. It was sort of split between centre-right conservatives like David Cameron and George Osborne, new Labour figures such as Peter Mandelson, and then some Lib Dems thrown in for good measure. And from those early days when Stuart Rose, who was notionally the chair of the Remain campaign, managed to fluff a lot of things, including the name of his own campaign. Looking back with hindsight, it does seem pretty obvious that Leave ran the better campaign and were on course to win. Yeah, I think that's true. And the fact is, we probably can't remember a single slogan from the Remain campaign, can we? I mean, it's hard to imagine. Hard to, can we there think was of the what? youth one, which was like chilling, voting, surfing. That was one that I remember. <laughs> well, that, that's very unmemorable. I, mean, I don't, <laughs> don't think I've ever even heard that one, but there was nothing to rival take back control. And in the end, the campaign became very much a Conservative Party campaign. The number 10 operation moved in, took over. And they were hobbled from the start, as Henry was alluding to earlier, by the fact they weren't prepared to go for what they called blue-on-blue attacks. David Cameron wasn't prepared to take on Boris Johnson head-to-head. And worse still, and this was something that the Leave campaign couldn't quite believe, they were never prepared to lump in Boris Johnson and Michael Gove with Nigel Farage and some of the UKIP people to keep putting them in the same group and say, look at these people, they're all the same. They're all, in the words of Matthew Elliott, who ran the campaign, right-wing nutters. And they were very worried that was going to happen. But they kept the gloves on because David Cameron, right until the very end, thought he was going to win. And indeed, on the day of the referendum, his pollsters were saying he'd won by 60-40 at least. So the whole campaign was premised on a complete misunderstanding of the electorate. And then we obviously went into the short campaign, which is the real intense part of it. And that's when we had the TV debates as well. Henry, now obviously TV debates are a relatively new invention in UK politics, but there was some real knockabout in these debates. And the one that sticks in my mind was in the last debate where Amber Rudd, who is now the Home Secretary, had a real direct pop at Boris Johnson. So this was some blue on blue action, but it was really too late. It was just a couple of days before the vote. And Amber Rudd said, you know, Boris is the great guy at the party who you want there, but he's not the one you want to drive you home at the end of the day, which seemed a really brutal attack on her now cabinet colleague, which just shows what an extraordinary year it has been. But I think within those debates, again, it was quite clear that the Remain campaign, they were just not as good and organised and as well planned as the Leavers were. Yeah, when it was three on three in those debates, you could see that the Leave people had practised together, whereas the Remain people hadn't. In one of the debates, Nicola Sturgeon couldn't get down from Scotland quick enough to have any kind of rehearsal with the people she was meant to be on one team with. But look, at the US. I mean, Hillary Clinton was said not just by commentators, but by the polling on the day to have won all three debates. And it didn't manage to translate for whatever reason into the vote she needed in the Midwest. So I think there is a point you can say, had David Cameron agreed to do a one-on-one with Boris Johnson, it might have made the difference. He might have been able to take him down. He might have made him look like an idiot and a, a charlatan. On the other hand, we don't necessarily know what tipped the balance. There's been a lot of books that have come out, um, some of them very good about Brexit, George, and they all seem to say the ultimate crime of David Cameron was to put party before country, that he was more concerned about the integrity of the Conservative Party and piecing it all back together on the other side than just really going for it and fighting because he's worried about his own position with a slim majority in Parliament. Well, that's true, and um, I think that's certainly relates to the campaign but you 
could also put, did he put the party before country in terms of having the referendum in the first place? Because it was clearly a piece of party management. I don't think personally that the country was clamouring for a referendum on the European Union. I know that the Conservative Party was, or certainly parts of the Conservative Party. But thinking back to where we started at the beginning of 2016, you know, David Cameron had just won a majority in the House of Commons. Strongest position he'd ever been in. The strongest position. And UKIP had a solitary one MP. Nigel Farage had failed completely to get elected in South Thanet. So it was this really weird legacy policy from the previous parliament, which suddenly was there, it was sitting on a powder keg, which of course blew him up. Let's come on to UKIP. UKIP were pretty much responsible, Henry, for getting this referendum, that the pressure had ratcheted up on the Conservative Party from UKIP throughout 2013, throughout 2014, which allowed David Cameron to say, I'm going to have this in-out referendum, which George says some think was not a good idea, something was inevitable given the way things were going. And Farage played an odd role in the referendum campaign, considering that, in the words of Donald Trump, he is Mr Brexit. And I think for most people, he still will be remembered as Mr Brexit. Because, as you said, the Leave EU campaign, which Farage was allied to, was not given an official role. So he did his own bus, he went around the country, but he wasn't involved in any of the really big TV debates and he didn't play a centre role there. And yet somehow seems to have come out the end of 2016 in a strong position than probably pretty much any other politician in the UK. Yeah, the anti-establishment message is the one that he sort of coined, I think, before it was Michael Gove being tired of experts. It was Nigel Farage in a pub sort of bashing Eurocrats or standing up in the European Parliament shouting at various people at Herman Van Rompuy. Farage, I think, decided during this campaign that I'm going to put myself ahead of party. I'm bored of managing a chaotic, fractious party full of people who aren't necessarily professional and aren't necessarily on best terms with each other. And it's going to be the Nigel Farage show. So his sort of move across the Atlantic to be close to Donald Trump, who instantly was a person he hadn't associated with in the months before, who sort of kept some distance from. And then immediately when Trump won, Farage started talking about Marine Le Pen in a way that he'd never wanted to do previously. So I think he's finding his own bandwagons, whereas previously UKIP and the referendum were the big thing. That's the interesting thing about Farage, that he was always quite hesitant. You know, Farage was saying privately, even in the summer, you know, there's a lot of things Donald Trump says about social issues, about Muslims that I don't personally agree with. But he's clearly caught something, whereas now he's gone all in for Trump as far as we can see. So let's come to actual Brexit itself, George, which obviously is the most consequential British foreign policy decision in decades. On June the 23rd, the country went to vote on the 24th. It was very clear it voted to leave the EU and it was 52-48%. So depending on your definition of a clear majority or not, it was clear enough that nobody has really seriously thought about not following the result. Most mainstream politicians we've seen this year have said, we just need to get on with Brexit because it was 1.5 million majority or so of people. But that then led off to a huge chain of events that led to it. And the morning after Brexit, David Camps outside Down Street and said, because he once said during the referendum campaign, Brits don't quit. And he promptly quit. Was that a surprise to you that he just left Downing Street so soon after the Brexit vote? No, it wasn't a surprise at all. I thought he would be gone within hours of the results and that turned out to be the case. It seemed inconceivable that he could be the person who would stay on and implement Brexit, be some sort of... He didn't believe in it, did he? He didn't believe in it and he would have been in a ludicrous and enfeebled situation where he was basically the puppet of a load of people he spent the previous three months trying to beat in a referendum. So I don't think that was a surprise that he left. But, you know, there was a vacuum at the time. It seemed an awful vacuum there of leadership in the immediate hours after the result, which Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, filled by coming out and making very statesman-like appearance and promising to do whatever it took. But there was 
a vacuum. And I think the fact that Theresa May emerged from the mess in the Conservative Party so swiftly is something we should all be quite grateful for, because actually she added sort of a level of political stability, which had been started on the monetary side by Mark Carney. We'll come to the um, Tory leadership contest in a moment, but we also had the Labour coup that was launched the weekend after the Brexit vote, Henry. I, think, I mean, coup is an amazing, it's amazing that that word's been swallowed. I mean, like, what, the, what, it, how would you describe it? I mean, a total lack of confidence and with very good reasons in a lot of cases for MPs not wanting Jeremy Corbyn to be a leader. I mean, the fact that it's been labelled a coup is really emblematic of how successful Jeremy Corbyn's campaign was in labelling this move as intensely treacherous and dishonest, then saying Owen Smith, the challenger, was as puppet of the pharmaceutical industry because he'd worked <laughs> at Pfizer. And I think it was an amazing act of survival by him and his supporters. It was, and this all began with um, Hilary Benn, who was a long-term critic of Mr Corbyn, had been phoning round people and it was revealed on The Observer soon after the referendum front page that he'd been sacked from the shadow cabinet. This led to a chain of events. Some say masterminded by Tom Watson, um, George, who in possibly some of the best images of this year had gone off to Glastonbury where very helpfully some no phone signal and the only thing we knew of Tom Watson was his Snapchat account with pictures of him in a silent disco and standing in a middle of a field with a can of Thatcher's cider while the shadow camp was unravelling before I then photographed the next morning at a train station in the middle of Somerset but as Henry alluded to it was not well planned at all they saw their opportunity to move against Corbyn and they went for it and fair play to them for at least seeing there was a spot there but they got it very badly wrong and they've ended up in a situation Mr Corbyn is now stronger than he was before there is no prospect of him leaving anytime soon and the money would say he's going to be Labour leader at the next general election I'm not sure that's actually true I mean there's another challenge come up now with um, a Labour MP in a marginal seat which is vulnerable to UKIP votes and also to the Conservatives resigning Jamie Reid And I think challenges will continue to mount to Jeremy Corbyn because the opinion polls are not good. This challenge this year was a sort of act of anger after the EU referendum, but I don't think it necessarily rules out any challenge from now until the next general election. I think the question is whether Jeremy Corbyn operates under the same rules as normal politicians. The problem is he seems to be operating under a different metric of success, which is not whether you can or can't win a parliamentary by-election or even a general election, but rather how big a social protest movement you can build. And the fact that he's got half a million members and claims to be, as Henry said, the leader of the biggest left party in Europe, it seems to be almost enough for him. And in a way it is, because those are the people who will sustain him through any future leadership challenge. I hope from the point of view of democracy that there is another challenge, because frankly, the polls have shown that people have made up their mind about Jeremy Corbyn. There is no circumstance that I can imagine where Jeremy Corbyn will become prime minister. Then we also had the extraordinary UKIP leadership contest, Henry, which was the smaller one of this year, which after Nigel Farage resigned, said he'd achieved Brexit, he'd done what he wanted to do and he was going to go off and explore other things. And they had a contest throughout the summer where none of the party's biggest figures really ran in it and it fell to Diane James, who was an MEP, who lasted 18 days as leader for reasons she since explained was she felt the party's old guard was going to be too hard to remove. You think she might have thought that before she ran for leader and then we had a second leadership contest where Paul Nuttall, who was expected to run the first, eventually did. And in between all that, there was a physical altercation between two of the party's MEPs in Brussels, Mike Hookham, the brilliantly named man, and Stephen Wolfe. So it's been another quite a year for you, Kip. I think Hookham denies there was any physical contact. It says that Stephen Wolfe fell through an open door and hit his head, just to make that clear. I mean, this was astonishing. In the first leadership election, Diane James, who won it, refused to specify any policies on the basis that once she was leader, then she would 
spend time developing her policies. She only lasted 18 days. There was this altercation, you say, and we thought that losing the referendum would be fatal for UKIP because what would be their purpose? In fact, winning the referendum left them with a real challenge about what do we do? Our, our main figures left. We don't necessarily have loads of money. We're not brilliantly run. The Conservatives have nicked our best policies. We also then, George, had obviously the big Tory leadership contest, which began in a very open field with lots of candidates we had. Stephen Crabb ran on a sort of dual ticket with Sajid Javid. He dropped out quite quickly. We also had Liam Fox, who had not a huge amount of support. He dropped out quite quickly. And then, of course, it all rounded on this question of what well, people were expecting. Boris Johnson, Theresa May, and Andrea Leadsom. And Andrea Leadsom was one of the big figures in the Vote Leave campaign. And she is now the Environment Secretary. And she ended up running because Boris fluffed his deal with her. And then Boris was then betrayed by Michael Gove, who failed to make it onto the final ballot. So just run us through briefly what happened there and also what it means for the party, because I feel a lot of what's going on in the Tory party now for the next few years is still a result of that leadership race. Well, I think that's right. And, um, you know, you described there the shambles that seem to surround Boris Johnson. And, and the power vacuum this whole time, the country's just voted for Brexit, sorry. And people are wanting leadership and this is what's going on. People wanted leadership and the day before Boris was due to make his big speech for the leadership, he was out playing cricket. And, you know, in some respects that's admirable. He's maintaining a bit of work-life balance. But this was a moment of crisis for the country and his big moment when he was hoping to become Prime Minister. As you say, he was meant to be offering a job to Andrea Leadsom to buy her off and the message never got through to her. Then Michael Gove in the middle of the night decided he was going to, as you say, stab Boris Johnson in the front. And I thought at that point... It was entirely conceivable that Andrea Leadsom, that most people never even heard of, could become Prime Minister because there were such lots of crazy things going on at the time. And of course, Andrea Leadsom's campaign then blew up. There were some inconsistencies apparently in her CV. And then she did a fateful interview on the platform of Milton Keynes Station with some Times journalists where she started making suggestions that she was better qualified to be Prime Minister because she was a mother and Theresa May wasn't. And out of this complete state of chaos, much quicker than people expected, Theresa May emerged. Now, I take the view that Theresa May has done virtually nothing in the last six or seven months. But I think the fact that she was there and she appeared to many Tory MPs as just the obvious choice. The country was in a state of shock and having someone who seemed pretty stable and seemed to embody the values of Middle England was the right person at the right time. And I suppose ever since Theresa May entered Downing Street, Henry, it's been just a lot of people trying to figure out what she means, what she stands for and what she's about. Because there wasn't that Tory leadership contest where if it had gone all the way through to September, policies would have been worked out and tried out and we would have learned something more about what Brexit actually means. But because she entered Downing Street so quickly, there's been no examination of that. There's been very little domestic legislation and infamous we're recording at the end of the year. Brexit still means Brexit. That's all we really have know about she wants to do one for Theresa May was to announce lots of grand ambitions to reform capitalism to make life better for those at the bottom of the heap curb corporate excesses and this sounded quite a radical departure it sounded like there was a kind of liberal era of new labor and Cameron government which she was sort of drawing to a close and yet I think we start to see the signs of how difficult it is to put those grand ambitions into practice. And one tiny example we see just this week, she promised to put a pay cap on special advisors. When the salaries come out this week and disclose, it turns out that basically the pay of special advisors is what it was a year ago. Actually, if you want good people in government, you have to pay for them. And it's just a small example of how you start talking about excesses and curbing them and reforming the system. In fact, the system requires the same medicine. Yeah, I think the caution with which she's been associated initially seemed a strength 
immediately after the Brexit vote. And people quite like the fact that there was someone cautious there. But in the end, is she going to be too cautious to do what she said she was going to do? And Henry's just gone through some of the things that she's not delivered on. I mean, admittedly, she came to power more quickly than she expected. Normally, politicians start to deploy their political capital in the first few months. She's done literally nothing or next to nothing. And I think our colleague, uh, Robert Simsley, has described a Theresa may or may not. And I think that's going to be the big question for 2017 as that fills out. And very briefly, finally, Henry, I just want to pick up on the sort of smaller parties as well. So we've been through UKIP, who've now got Paul Nutter installed as their leader and are sort of trying to sort out their various internal issues. The fact they've got no money, the fact that their membership has declined, the fact they barely have a head office at the moment. But they are in quite a good position as we look forward to 2017, that we've got this by-election in Copeland that you mentioned coming up early in the new year. And UKIP could do well there. It's a northern seat, a brexit seat. There's a big focus on the armed force because of the nearby nuclear industry and base at Barrow. So they're in a good position. The SNP have been relatively quiet this year in terms of they've not done much, but they've used Brexit to talk about a second independence referendum, but they haven't actually really done anything. And then the Liberal Democrats, as I mentioned, we had the yellow dawn when they seized the Richmond Park by-election, which was caused by a vote on Heath so when Zach Goldsmith, who lost two elections this year, bombed out of it. That's right. Uh, UKIP, I think one way of looking at it is they have two years till their MEPs lose their seats if Brexit happens in mid-2019. And so they've got to recover some kind of power base. So they've either got to start winning council seats or they've got to get seats in parliament. They're, they're one MP at the moment. Doug, Douglas Carswell doesn't actually get on with most people in the party, so kind of unlikely to group around him. The Lib Dems are up to nine MPs, and you would say that they would be enthusiastic about an early general election because they would be almost guaranteed to pick up some seats they can't do as badly as they did under Nick Clegg. And for the SNP, I think no elections and no big votes, no referendums in the near future is probably a good thing. The party's had so many fights, and it's won quite a few of them, but lost the independence referendum and lost the European referendum, that it really could do, some people say, with a period where it builds up policy, where it goes through the sort of the case it wants to make for independence before coming back in a stronger position. And George, I've just realised we forgot the London mayoral election this year as well, which was a very brutal contest between Labour's Sadiq Khan and the Conservative Zach Goldsmith and Zach was seen as something of a golden boy Tory moderniser. He was environmentalist, urbane, good public image, but he became the party's candidate and ran a shockingly awful campaign which was racist tins and some say would full on is racist. While Labour Sadiq Khan managed to win the primary process, he wasn't expected to win and he's now become Mayor of London. Then Zach Goldsmith lost second election so even though it was a bad year for David Cameron it was certainly a very bad year for Zach Goldsmith. It was. As you say, Zach Goldsmith's campaign campaign where he played on Sadiq Khan's background and tried to link him with extremists was one of the most disreputable campaigns I can remember in modern times. And David Cameron did himself no credit by associating himself with it. But just to sort of end on a bright note for 2016, whatever your political affiliations and given the recent events in Berlin and elsewhere, I think it's something to celebrate that London should have voted for the son of a Pakistani bus driver and It wasn't just the fact that London voted for him, but it wasn't even an issue for most Londoners. Despite the best efforts of Zach Goldsmith to turn it into an issue, most Londoners have probably never even clocked the idea that he was a a Muslim. And it was just not a matter of any note whatsoever. And the fact that he became mayor and it wasn't a big issue was actually one of the best things I think that happened in British politics this year. And last but not least, George, the last thing of 2016, what's the one thing we should look out for next year? I think the thing I will be looking out for is 
potential weakening of the position of Theresa May. She ends 2016 in quite a good position. Her opinion poll ratings are high, but there are so many perilous waters ahead of her. You not only have the EU negotiations to go through, which could go badly wrong very quickly, you also have a prime minister sitting on a very small parliamentary majority. She's got to get legislation through to enact Brexit with the possibility of successive defeats in the House of Commons and probably in the House of Lords. And I think the chipping away of her authority will be a thing we need to watch out for in 2017. And Henry? I think it's just possible that in a year's time, people will be talking about Jeremy Corbyn stepping down voluntarily because he hasn't shown the leadership that his team have promised he will from the start of 2017. Well, if it was a nice, quiet year in UK politics, then it was also just as exciting abroad. The frantic US presidential race resulted in the surprise election of Donald Trump, which has grave consequences for the Western lines, the world's economy, trade and pretty much everything else. We also had the Austrian presidential elections, which resulted in a populist victory before it was then overturned. In Italy, a constitutional referendum led to the downfall of Matteo Renzi, while the whole time Russia's might has increased and the suffering in Syria has continued. So Martin Wolf, out of all the political events outside the UK and Brexit, which we've talked about, which is the most striking for you and why? Obviously, as there can't be any doubt, the election of Donald Trump is the most remarkable political event of the year, of decades, really. He was seen as a rank outsider at the beginning of the year, or simply inconceivable that this uh, celebrity TV personality and serial bankrupt, as he had been in his real estate ventures, would end up as the most powerful person in the world. Nobody knows what it means, but it's far and away the most significant event politically of the year. And Gillian Ted from your perch in New York, I imagine you're going to say that Donald Trump was also the most significant global political event of 2016. He certainly is the most significant event from where I'm sitting, but it's important to stress that he's a symptom of a bigger wave of changes going on. And really, he represents a howl of rage amongst large part of the Western electorate, particularly the US electorate. In fact, not a majority of the US electorate, if you look at the popular vote, but there is definitely a large howl of rage. People frustrated by the speed of globalization, digitization, a sense of alienation, people who've come to expect disruption in many other areas of their life, people who essentially don't see why they have to put up with the current political status quo and are keen to do something, almost anything, to get unstuck. In the race, looking at it as a traditional political campaign, everything seemed to be against Donald Trump. He wasn't spending in the same way Hillary Clinton was. He didn't have the same ground operation. He frequently lied and misused statistics. And yet none of those things mattered for this. So it's people sticking their fingers up at the establishment since he won the election in November. What have we learned about what sort of presidency going to be, Gillian? Well, the first point I make is actually I've been writing columns myself for the best part of a year saying that I thought there was a chance he could win because I've spoken to people across the country in surprising places who have explained why they were supporting him in spite of all the flaws that you've just pointed out. So, you know, was I surprised by the victory to a degree? Yes, but not shocked at all because we had written that quite a bit. In terms of what he means next, frankly, as Martin says, we just don't know. He has created a cabinet full of very conflicting and contrasting strands. There are a couple of ideologues. There are a number of pragmatists who don't appear to have any ideology whatsoever. He's basically cocking a hoop against the political establishment by primarily promoting business people and military leaders into roles of power. It appears that parts of the Trumpian team have a 
you know, fairly coherent set of economic policies in the sense of trying to return to the days of supply-side economics. I mean, Jack Kemp is their guru, the old supply-sider from the Reagan era. But the problem is that Trump has two faces. You know, he's got the um, face that's determined to be pragmatic and businesslike and get stuff done. And then what I call the crazy face that tweets at 3 a.m. Well, I suppose the big question is, Martin, which of those faces is going to be the US president? Or is there a third face, which is a vaguely more conventional Republican. But this is the weird paradox of President-elect Trump because throughout his campaign, his slogan was drain the swamp and this was targeted at Washington, the elites who run America, that I'm going to come in and get rid of them. And as Gillian has just said, his cabinet is full of them. How does that figure and what are Trump voters going to feel about that? It really is difficult to make sense of it. My own guess is we'll see both faces of Trump every day perhaps even by the hour, we should perhaps not expect consistency. He will say one thing, he will do something else, or somebody else will do something else in the administration because he can't control everything. He might end up often criticising the policies of his own administration. He might sack a lot of people. Who knows how this is going to unfold? My sense is that we must remember that we have a Republican Congress and they have their own ambitions and they still control most of the domestic levers of power that matters, for instance, taxation and uh, spending. He's going to have to do a deal with them. My guess is on economics, we're going to see very big tax cuts, very big tax reforms. The impact of that will be in the short to medium run, possibly forever, I think forever, big increases in fiscal deficits. Now, he's appointed somebody to his Office of Management and Budget who is absolutely a spending hawk. That would imply massive spending cuts, which would affect the very constituency that's voted for him in return for his promise that he will protect Social Security and Medicare. So what's going to happen on that is a very big question and one of many about the future economic policies of the United States. One of the ways to look at what's happened is to pick up an point made by Axel Weber, the former head of the Bundesbank, who says that in the past, you know, you had political risk in emerging markets and you had the Western developed markets in financial terms, which were not thought to be prone to political risk, because in a sense, you could predict the future by looking at economic numbers. And if once you knew which party was in power, you could then predict roughly what policy they would have. In fact, with the arrival of Trump and others, what you have is personality based politics, where no one really knows what Trump's going to do because Trump himself doesn't know. And it all really depends on the individual, not on the party to a degree. Yes, the Republicans can control Congress, but so much is uncertain and based on Trump's two faces. So the one thing we do know is that investors are going to have to brace for a very volatile, uncertain period and that essentially it's going to be very data driven. Every single tweet or data point we get out of Trump could drive the markets one way or the other. And we've already seen that with his tweets about Boeing, for example, with the replacement to Air Force One, which is a long-standing project, which he just tweeted saying it was costing $4 billion, which was factually incorrect. And it sent the shares in Boeing diving, which is very extraordinary. Plus, one thing that's going to be interesting, um, Gillian, that we're both users of Twitter, is will Trump still tweet in the White House, do you think? Well, like much else, we don't know. We will probably find out on January 21st when he takes up the Oval Office. One thing we do know, Martin, is about trade. There's a lot of protectionists who have gone up in Donald Trump's cabinet here. And this was one of the things he talked about on the campaign trail, which was saying that we need to bring jobs back to America. We need to basically beat China over the head with a stick. That was essentially his message. And that theme seems to have continued. That has big global implications as well as the US just being sort of the gravity where everything begins and ends. 
depends from. What do you expect to see from that in 2017? Is he going to start raising trade barriers and entering a war with China? Not a real one, hopefully. Well, apart from the fiscal policy issues and the spending issues already raised, this is the second huge economic question. The group of economic policymakers he's chosen... Uh, it's to to put it mildly peculiar, and it contains people with very different points of view. But there are at least two significant protectionists in this group. But there are also actually people who are clearly not protectionists. They're extreme free marketeers. Larry Cutlow was one of these supply siders of old, and we've got Gary Cohen, previously from Goldman Sachs, an absolutely standard centrist, and we've got Stephen Nuchin at Treasury, and he doesn't seem to be a protectionist. So again, which of these voices he's going to listen to, I don't know. But if he starts with these sort of massive tariffs on Chinese exports completely outside any normal rules where there's no real occasion for them, I think this is an amazingly disruptive possibility. I mean, one of the ironies about Donald Trump's entire language on jobs is that if you look at the data, about 85% of the jobs have been lost in U.S. manufacturing. And, you know, you have to recognize 5.6 million jobs were lost between 2000 and 2010. 85% of those were lost because of digitization or automation, not because of China or Mexico. And one great irony is that if Donald Trump insists on keeping manufacturing operations inside America, that automation trend will simply continue and intensify. But you have to step back and look at what he says about trade in a much wider context, because having spent quite a lot of time talking with people around Trump, they see this really as a kind of reset of 71 years of global order and America's role in the world. And very roughly speaking, you know, they think that post-World War II and during the Cold War era, the world was arranged in a certain way where America essentially played a dominant role, a leading role. Trade deals were designed to give help to other countries to help reconstruct them after World War II. And the security system was dependent on America providing a linchpin. And they say over and over again, we've had 71 years of this. It's time to change. We've outgrown the system. We have to reset. So the language on trade has to be seen in that context one facet of a wider reset that they want to implement of the geopolitical system. And the alarming thing is that they've got an idea of what they don't want, which is the current system. We've yet to see what on earth they do want. And finally, on the America um, question, Martin, well, why do you think Hillary Clinton lost? Because by most conventional metrics, very experienced candidate ran what seemed to people seem to think was a good campaign. And yet she just didn't make it in the end. Now, as Gillian pointed out earlier, she has won the popular vote by quite some margin, but she didn't win where it mattered for the Electoral College. I can't really comment on this in a sense. I'm sure Gillian is much better positioned than I am to comment on why she lost. It was clear from the very beginning that she wasn't a thrilling candidate. She has an immense amount of baggage, which was exploited very effectively. It's clear that a very substantial part of the electorate wanted change, any change. It's worth noting in a way that Barack Obama was also chosen because he represented change. There seems to be a strong desire to have change. And she clearly wasn't that. There were no really strong coherent themes. And then, of course, I suppose one has to ask the question whether being a woman was a very significant disadvantage. I think the issue about the message and presentation is crucial because having gone to both conventions in the summer, the Democrat convention was full of policy ideas and full of pious intentions, but also a completely muddled message in terms of there were not just one slogan, there were two slogans, I'm with her, stronger together. And the key point about that was there was no verb sounds irrelevant, but it matters enormously because what Hillary Clinton was basically campaigning on was, in a sense, the status quo. Donald Trump had a very clear message, make America great again. 
everyone could memorize it. It was in some ways it was meaningless, but it was strong. It had a verb. It was about action and change. And it's worth noting that Make America Great Again is rather like Take Back Control, which won the Brexiteers, their campaign. And the reality is the electorate are hungry for verbs, for change. And that's what they've got. One area that hasn't changed this year, Martin, has been Russia, when Vladimir Putin, who still remains supreme leader of all he sees over there, and has increased his power this year, that obviously Donald Trump has very different views towards Russia than Barack Obama does. And we've generally seen a bit of a reset there, but Mr. Putin emerges as a very strong figure on the world stage now after the events of this year. It's quite impressive, particularly given that the economy has performed miserably, that he has ended up in such a potent position. He's obviously exploited Russian resources, Russian ability to use the internet with incredible effectiveness. But I suspect more important are the wounds that the West has done to itself. These go back quite a long way. The Iraq war and its consequences for the West have been enormous. The financial crisis, the despair and anger that caused. And we should remember in that context, we've been focusing on the US, but Europe too has been soldiering on through a huge Eurozone crisis. The economy has been in aggregate pretty well stagnant. We talked about Italy. France too is facing a hugely important election next year and of course is very unhappy. Poland is being now very important. Eastern European country is being led by a government which basically hates the European Union. So from Putin's point of view, he can look around. All his enemies are in disarray. They have immensely much greater power potential than he has, but they don't know what they're doing. And he has exploited that fantastically successfully. One of the most controversial things from Russia this year, Gillian, I think has been this whole topic of hacking from Russia and also fake news have both been linked to Vladimir Putin. That In the US presidential election, there were hacks that seem pretty much confirmed have come directly from Russia, if not from Mr. Putin himself, but also Russia propagating fake news, which seemed to help Donald Trump. It doesn't look like either of these things are going to stop either. In any other year than this year, the idea that Russians could have essentially hacked the American election would have been front page news every single day. I mean, this is the stuff of as well. stuff of extraordinary spy thrillers of Hollywood movies. It's almost too preposterous for an American um, Hollywood movie. It would have been a few years ago, but such has been the range of extraordinary events this year and the rise of Donald Trump that it's almost been relegated, almost ignored at, at times. It is indeed extraordinary. The question now is how the U.S. will or will not respond, and thus far they have not responded in a particularly forceful way. And the reality is that this is going to continue. It's clear that the hacking is happening all over the place. And if nothing else, what we're also seeing is a real sharp decline in trust in the media and in many other institutions of government. And that's worrying, not just because I work in the media, but because having a functioning trusted media and information source is crucial for democracy. It's not been a good year for facts, Martin. No, it's been a very, very bad year for facts. People have fabricated them. And as Gillian has mentioned, people are deeply suspicious of all the organs, both official and private, 
the media and official statistical services that generate them. In a world where everybody believes that they're perfectly entitled to believe and expound their own facts, it's really not clear how any democratic system can function at all, and certainly how serious policy can be conducted. And indeed, that brings us back to what might happen with Mr. Trump and what actually happened here with Brexit, which is it's almost impossible to have a coherent policy discussion in this environment. And I don't expect coherent policy. I expect policy chaos. One of the most revealing ways to try and understand what's going on is to look at what's happening with the explosion of social media and the growing development of what I call cyber tribes, essentially groups of people talking just to other people in intellectual echo chambers. But also the fact that if you look at surveys and polls, there's a clear trend away from people trusting in authority figures to trusting their peer group for information. And if you combine that sort of horizontal axis of trust or shift away from vertical to horizontal with this kind of cyber tribalism, you essentially get what people are calling a post-truthy world, where different tribes have their own versions of truth and just don't talk to each other. And as Martin says, that is not a world where it's easy to have rational debate. One of the most practical implications of Mr Putin's position this year, Martin, has been the situation in Syria, which has continued to become ever more depressing and we're recording this still as Aleppo is attempting to be evacuated. And essentially the West has lost there. That is what has happened this year. And that ever since Britain and the US declined to get involved, it has become a battle which Mr Putin has fought very hardly and looks to be winning at least in Aleppo and possibly wider elsewhere. I think it is possible to say that the West lost, it certainly didn't win, but the really defining fact is that the West never really decided what it wanted. And it wanted Mr. Saad to go without doing anything. And it wanted him to be replaced by a nice, democratic, liberal bunch of alternative politicians. And it failed on both counts, because even if Mr. Saad had gone, he would clearly have been replaced by jihadis of some kind. So we were then confronted with a hopeless choice. And the result was we did not. Nothing nothing effective, nothing coherent, and Mr. Putin went into this vacuum. Now, what he's got is, apart from having killed an immense number of people, is he will have a base. He will have a very, very weak Syrian state. Some sort of conflict with jihadi groups will go on indefinitely. So I don't think it's a tremendous prize, but it's what he's got. The region will remain highly unstable. That's absolutely clear. We should mention that Iran is another huge winner, perhaps even bigger winner here. But this is more an issue for Europeans than for Americans. Because the region will remain in such a mess, the big concern the Europeans have, which is about migration, is likely to continue in some form. Basically, what you're seeing is a classic example of when you take out one piece of a house of cards, everything else starts tumbling down. And unfortunately, the ricochet effect of what's happened in the Middle East will continue next year in very dangerous forms. And of course, and finally, Martin, Europe has been fascinating to watch, but also very disturbing in many ways. As I said, first of all, we had the Austrian presidential elections, which resulted in uh, Norbert Hofer, who was a populist far-right candidate who was elected by a very slim margin of 30,000 votes or so. That was then overturned due to a recount, which I think was very interesting in particular, because first of all, he would have been the first far-right leader in mainland Europe. But when people had a second chance... They didn't back Mr. Hoffer in the numbers they had last time. So it's quite interesting what happened there. And what does it say about the future, do you think? Well, Austria is a very small country, but it was an encouraging result, though incredibly close. But I think the really big questions, leaving aside relations with Russia, 
are what happens in three countries next year. Italy, where Matteo Renzi is gone. They've got a replacement government, but the Cinque Stelle movement is definitely in the wings. And the Italians have gone for populists previously. It was Berlusconi on the right. Then we've got the really big one, which is France. What will happen in the French presidential election? Everybody in power in the establishment praise Marine Le Pen doesn't win. I think she could. I mean, I have been concerned about this. I think it's imaginable. And then there's Poland, which is a very, very important country and is engaged in a really bitter conflict at the moment between the old establishment and the new one. These three countries are each in different ways in very considerable political turmoil. If something goes wrong in any one of these, let alone two or three, the European Union as a structure is really in danger. I mean, one of the very important things to note about the Austrian situation at the presidential vote was that essentially the centrist candidates collapsed and centrist candidates have dominated Austrian politics for the past few decades. And yet right across Europe right now, it's very hard to see centrist candidates that are operating with a strong mandate and a strong sense of support from the population. In some ways, Angela Merkel is the only one left standing. Even the Netherlands, which was supposed to be a bastion of rational centrist politics, you're seeing Gid Wilders essentially leading, the nationalists leading the polls at the moment. So the question that really hangs over Western politics over the next year is, will it be possible to revive centrist politics in a meaningful fashion that actually enables the centre to come back again. From my point of view, and I want to put it in the broadest possible context because of you know I've been around for quite a while, I think that we forget how much the politics, even in America, but even more in Europe, from 1945 to 1990, was shaped by the fear of what happened in the 30s and the total destruction of order. What's now happening is we have fear and anger again, but people are no longer frightened of the consequences of the collapse of orderly systems, war, of chaos. They're not as frightened as my generation was. I think the same is true in the US. They want to take a risk on something new because they don't realize how terribly things can go wrong. And that, I think, is shaping a lot of politics. People are very angry with the present, but they're not fearful of the consequences of extreme solutions. I agree. And in fact, a very seasoned bank regulator once said to me, the best way to stop a big banking crisis is to make sure a country has lots of regular small banking crises and keeps everyone on their toes. And in some ways, what's happening today in America is a tragic consequence of the success of the post-war era and the fact that you only need to go back two decades ago and things seem to be so calm and stable that Fukuyama wrote it was the end of history. And that essentially has lulled people into a false sense of security. Martin, just to conclude, looking at, first of all, Europe's economy and also the world's economy, can you just give us an outline of where things are and what you expect to happen in 2017? Well, my answer always is that the most likely thing to happen is we'll have another year of growth in the world economy, about 2 or 3%, because that's what usually happens. There are, I think, however, some very, very big political risks here. A trade war, a real war. I think the America-China relationship has to be watched now really closely. Since his uh, tweet about Taiwan. It could go very badly wrong very, very quickly. There is a big set of risks to European stability, even, I think, to the Eurozone. It's definitely non-zero. I'm not forecasting that. That will be a monstrous financial crisis. It 
Marine Le Pen is president. I don't know how this will continue, and it could probably break down completely. I'm very worried about the stability of the Chinese economy, actually. I continue to be massive accumulations of debt, which in the wrong political context, you know, the politics and economics tends to go together, could prove to be a house of cards. And the same is true of the Eurozone. So it's this combination of political irresponsibility, if that's the right word, what I think is a forgetting of the past, along with very clear economic fragility, gives you not inconsiderable downside risk. So my general expectation, growth 2 or 3%, but something big could happen at any point. It could be next year, it could be the year after, but the world economy seems to me fragile even more than I thought it was in 2006, and I didn't realise how bad it could be then. And Gillian, what's your analysis of what to look out for in economies across the world in 2017? Well, I would agree with what Martin has said. I think we're going to see a set of American policies that aim to create some form of reflation. I think there could be quite radical policies there, very much in the mould of kind of Jack Kempian um, ideas. I think we're going to see a pretty volatile situation in terms of the political world. It's really, though, to my mind, the foreign policy risk right now that everyone should be watching, first and foremost, North Korea is an issue that I think is very alarming. In fact, if I had to make a guess about what would be the first big foreign policy crisis that President Trump faces, it could well be North Korea. And that issue has hardly been debated yet in America. And last but not least, I was sitting recently at dinner with some of the key architects of the whole Eurozone project. And one of them, I asked, you know, okay, so do you think the Eurozone could ever break up? And he said, if you'd asked me that question at any point in the last few years until about a month ago, I would have said, absolutely not. And now I just don't know. And to me, that really sums up where we're going. And just briefly, can you just fill us on North Korea, what you mean about what's going to happen there? Um, well, the thing about North Korea that's very alarming right now is that basically they've got three out of four stages sorted that they need to fire a missile with nuclear warheads at not just South Korea and not just Japan, but San Francisco as well. And the North Korean regime is very unpredictable. And you've seen quite an escalation of their activity recently. The Japanese are extremely concerned about this. South Korea is a complete mess right now, politically. You know, there is a chance that something very nasty could happen there. And the Americans don't appear to have a clear-cut policy of what to do with it. North Korea could be our Sarajevo. I think that is absolutely correct and worth stressing. Taiwan is another possibility, but North Korea is could do anything. Well, on that happy context, we'll say farewell for our final FT Politics podcast of this year. Thank you very much to all my guests, both in this episode and throughout 2016, for joining. We'll be back in the new year for another instalment of FT Politics. For me and everyone else at the FT, we hope you have a very happy Christmas. Thank you very much for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.